So yes, we're in the book of Luke again. We will begin this morning with a, be, uh, a brief review and some added information that I could not get to uh, last week. And this is a problem for you all on Sunday mornings because all week long I read things. And then I find more things out and I think, you know, I really should have said that last week. And this is really an, an, an important part of the picture. So some of that's taking place this morning as well. But I, I trust you will still find it interesting. So uh, last week we followed the crowd of about 800 as they led Jesus, who was bound into Jerusalem from Gethsemane. This is a review of a review, just setting the stage. We followed Jesus and his accuser down an outdoor corridor. Judas was with them and through a gate into the courtyard of Annas and Caiaphas. We observed one of the disciples passing through the guarded gate into the courtyard while Simon Peter stopped shy of going through that gate, probably with his back up against the wall, trying to remain unnoticed. And then we know that the other disciple returned to usher Peter into the courtyard. We observed one of the uh, disciples pass through as if the, uh, the uh, leadership knew him. The scriptures tell us that Simon Peter gathered around a small fire where others were warming themselves. So we learned that it was a cold or a cold morning, just some of the reality. And by this time, Jesus was being interrogated by Annas, the retired high priest, if you will, but still with a lot of power, kind of the boss of the temple grounds. And he met with Annas for two specific reasons. One is Annas wanted to inflict vengeance upon him because he was threatening his position, his power, and his profits. Annas was hoping, number two, Annas was hoping that through clever questioning, Jesus would unwittingly say something that could be twisted into a confession of breaking one of the Roman laws. Now remember, this is a nation within a nation. Israel, if you want to call them Israel, is a nation under the authority of Rome. So everything they do in some way or another has to be approved by Rome and specifically the governor of that area. The reason Annas was trying to get him to trip up and confess to a Roman law that he had broken is because then the jurisdiction would go under Rome instead of Annas and Caiaphas and the chief priests. They were trying to find a way, as Pilate said, to wash their hands of Jesus and still accomplish their goal. Well, the problem was for Annas is he don't trip up God. He doesn't make mistakes. So Annas is trying to get him to voice something that he could twist. And the way we know that is John 18, 19 says this. The high priest Annas then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. If we had been there, that questioning might have sounded something like this. So, who are you, Jesus? I hear a lot of things. Who do you claim to be? 
Who are you? That might be one question. Another one might be, and, and who are your disciples? Are you in league with the zealots who just recently mounted a, an insurrection and deaths occurred? You might have said, by the way, Jesus, do you know a guy by the name of Barabbas? See what's trying to ha- what he's trying to do here? He's trying to connect Jesus to anything where he could be arrested. Tell me, Jesus, do you think it is unjust that we have to pay taxes to Rome? If you were king, what would you do concerning Rome? Do you think God has selected you to be king like he did King David? Because this was going around, right? I want to remind you of something here, by the way. Until I thought back through this, it astounded me. You know how many days have elapsed from the triumphant entry until now? Five. All this has taken place, it'll be six, in five days. You know, you know why this is important? It's because hundreds of thousands of people that said, Hosanna, Hosanna, and the highest, still didn't realize any of this was going on. They're still looking for Jesus. And whenever they see Jesus, you know what their hopes are? I hope, is this our king? Now, now that's going to be important because Annas and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin have to find a way to turn hundreds of thousands of people against Jesus. And there's no cable networks, no internet, no billboards. So however much I despise what they're doing here, they are very clever. So he sends... Annas sends Jesus to Caiaphas. And think about those possible questions. Such wasted time. Not one question concerning God the Father. Not one question concerning the fulfillment of prophecy. Not even a question about heaven. It's just, do you know Barabbas? Can you imagine what Jesus might have said if Annas had asked, what do you believe God would have me do with you? Well, surprisingly, Jesus would probably have said, Annas, you already are doing it. You're paving the way for the cross. It's your destiny. Does that make you uncomfortable? See, you missed your chance to stand with me Therefore, you are standing against me in your sin and fulfilling God's plan. My blood will be on your hands. This brings up a good point, by the way. For all of us, God will either use you in your sins to accomplish his purpose, as he did Annas, or he will use you as a believer, as he did Simon Peter, 
to accomplish his purpose. And Simon Peter, we all know that his flaws are written in eternity. But he was a believer. I'm going to say that again. God will either use you in your sin and accomplish his purpose, or he will use you as a believer and accomplish his purpose. Either way, you will be used by God according to his purpose, perhaps even gloriously, and you may still miss heaven. We find Christ's response to Annas. We'll make this quick, still review. John 18, 20, 23 says this, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And one of the officers standing by, by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said was wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And this is when Annas said, Take him to Caiaphas. And they bound him and took him to Caiaphas. Now, for what purpose was Annas sending Christ to Caiaphas? He had the power. He could have easily said, let's move this on quickly. But there were reasons he sent him to Caiaphas. Because Caiaphas could do what Annas could not do in these areas. Annas, uh, Caiaphas was a backup plan. This is what I believe. He was a backup plan. They were hoping Annas could accomplish this. And they could persuade Jesus to say that he broke law. And the most logical person to execute that backup plan was Caiaphas. Here's how we know this. The Sanhedrin was already gathered where Caiaphas was. They weren't gathered where Annas was. And now they're reduced to obtaining only one possible charge against Jesus. And it's blasphemy. The charge of blasphemy is what they are reduced to. And Caiaphas and the chief priests and the scribes, the Sanhedrin, were all there. We read in Matthew twenty six sixty five. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? Remember they were having a hard time finding two witnesses that could agree? There was a seven-point system, by the way, on, and, and figuring out if, if someone was lying. And it all had to do with starting at the, at the least influential point of them making a statement and taking it through all the system up to where then they had to appear before the Sanhedrin. They could not find any two people that would agree. But remember, he's saying he's uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? Why did he do that? Because they couldn't find any witnesses. So he wanted to make Jesus commit blasphemy in front of everybody. That was his plan. And then he says, you have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. 
Who is it that struck you? Now, we read that last week. But this is not what they had hoped for. They could have cared less if Jesus blasphemed. They certainly didn't respect God enough not to blaspheme themselves. And by the way, Rome couldn't have cared less if some Jewish upstart had blasphemed the God that they don't even uh, recognize. They still have a problem. By the way, the same is true for us today so far. In the United States, you can say anything you want about any God, any religion. The Supreme Court has no right to rule on you. The Sanhedrin was the Supreme Court in Israel. So the grand conspiracy against Jesus was reduced to attempting to get Jesus to say that he was God. And by the way, if anyone other than Jesus had said they were God, that would have been blasphemy. However, Jesus was speaking truth. And he was speaking not only truth, but the truth. As in the holy word of God. Interesting thought. Jesus would have been committing blasphemy against God the Father if he had denied God. Definition of blasphemy, just take some time and look it up. Google it, Bible, comma, blasphemy. And you'll get the definitions. But one is to deny that God the Father is God. He would have been committing blasphemy against himself. As a matter of fact, he would have been committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Unforgivable sin. Had he said he was not the Son of God. On another note, the Holy Word of God that Jesus spoke at that trial had the power to convert Caiaphas and the others. But it didn't. Just think about that for a minute. Every word that Jesus spoke to his detractors was the truth. The word of God. Every word Jesus spoke had the power of salvation within it. How do we know this? John eight thirty two, and you will know the truth and what? Truth will set you free. If every word that Jesus spoke is truth, and by the way, every word that Jesus spoke is scripture, because scripture is from God then every time he spoke in front of Caiaphas and Annas and the Romans and Judas, those words he spoke had the power for salvation. God never stopped ministering to these people. Just like today, every time you hear Scripture, this is God's effort to awaken you to his truth that can set you free. So last week we closed with Jesus being led swollen and bloody from Caiaphas through the courtyard past Simon Peter to Pontius Pilate. Today we're going to cover Pontius Pilate. That's all we're going to have time to cover today. He's an interesting guy and the role he played. So Jesus stood before Annas, Caiaphas, Sanhedrin. Now they are taking him to the Roman governor. This is a critical time in their plan because something has to turn here. They have to convince Pontius Pilate that this guy is a threat to Rome. 
They don't care if he's a threat to Israel. They couldn't care less. So now their plan has, ta- has taken a turn, and this is critical. It is imperative that Pilate finds Christ to be guilty of committing a crime against the state or at the very least being a threat. So who was Pilate? Interesting guy. Josephus, Jewish historian, and a couple of other Jewish historians tell us the following. Tiberius Caesar, who succeeded Augustus in A.D. 14, appointed Pontius Pilate as governor of Judea in 26 A.D. Now, you remember that Jesus began his public ministry at 30 years old. So Pontius Pilate was in in power for a couple of years, just a short time before Jesus began that ministry. Pilate arrived and made his official residence in Caesarea Maritima, which was the Roman capital of Judea. He's a governor over Judea, and he decides that he's going to move from Caesarea to Jerusalem to make that his main place. Pilate was the fifth procurator of Judea, and that generally covered the south half of Palestine, including Samaria. Now, the procurator was devoted to the emperor and directly responsible to him, like maybe a governor of our states. If we eliminated some of the republic and and the democratic structures that we have, would be directly responsible to the president of the United States. Pilate's primary responsibility was financial. However, the authority of the Roman procurators varied according to the appointment of the emperor. Certain things were looked at. Did this particular procurator, did he have military experience? What kind of wisdom, what kind of experience did he bring to the job? So Pilate was a procurator who possessed civil military, and criminal jurisdiction. He had the authority to make decisions on behalf of Rome. Under the rule of the procurator, like Pontius Pilate, the Jews were allowed as much self-government as possible under the imperial authority. You can kind of hear Tiberius. Pilate, I'm going to make you procurator over Judea. You know who's in Judea, Pilate? I do know who is in Judea. It's those crazy Jews. I don't say that as derogatory. That's how they were viewed. Why? Because they were following a God that nobody else understood. They would riot over some things that they would why are you rioting over this? This was a much better thing to riot over over yeah, but that doesn't concern us. So he's giving Pilate jurisdiction over this area of the Roman Empire that is probably some of the most volatile, for lack of a better term. Well, according to history, Pilate made an immediate negative impression upon the Jews when he moved his army headquarters from Caesarea to Jerusalem. They marched into the city with their Roman standards bearing the image of of Tiberius, which, by the way, was considered a god. And he set up headquarters right in the northeast corner of the temple where Fort Antonia is and the palace fortress. And this probably would have been the same gate that Jesus was led through from Gethsemane into the city. 
says, Pilate quickly learned how zealous the Jews were concerning political power within the province, and according to Josephus, ordered the standards to be returned to Caesarea. That was one of the wisest things Pilate did as governor. He saw the problems. He saw the emotion. He goes, okay, take these back. One time he placed on the walls of his palace, which was built on Mount Zion, by the way, holy land, holy ground, golden shields bearing inscriptions of the names of various gods. The Jews complained to him, maybe even picketed against him, and he did nothing. And then Tiberius finally had to personally order the removal of the shield. So are you beginning to understand Tiberius is in Rome. He appoints Pilate, and it's a volatile area. The first thing Pilate does is he marches from Caesarea into Jerusalem with banners with Tiberius' image on it. Pilate does the right thing, and he says, this isn't worth the hassle. He sends the standards back, and later on he brings in golden shields, places them on the palace walls, and on each one of these shields is a name of a foreign god, the Jews are saying, this is inappropriate. They begin to riot. And that time, Pilate says, you are not going to rule my province. And he left them. And word got back to Tiberius, and Tiberius said, Pilate, take down the shields. I get the feeling that Pilate was kind of a thorn in the side of Tiberius. I get the feeling that Tiberius may be eating grapes in Rome because that's what all the movies show that they did. Eating grapes in Rome and someone says, Sir, a messenger from Judea. And it's about Pilate. I kind of get the impression of Tiberius going, Ay, ay, ay. Again, send him in. Still another time, Pilate used the sacred treasure of the temple to pay for bringing water into Jerusalem by an aqueduct. Stole the money. A crowd came together and protested against him. But this was his solution. He had caused soldiers dressed as civilians to mingle with the multitude. And at a given signal, they fell upon the rioters and beat them so severely with staves that the riot was quelled. How important do you think it was to Pilate that word did not get back to Tiberius during the Passover of the Jews that he wasn't controlling things? There's a lot of personal stuff here. And it's ironic, is it not, that Israel would riot concerning shields with the names of foreign gods being placed on the governor's palace, and yet the Sanhedrin the people's leaders regularly extorted the people of God in the temple courts by selling trinkets and animals. See what legalism does? By the way, legalism is not from God. Legalism is nothing more than laws taking the place of God. And this is what happens with legalism. We become blinded to our own sin because those sins over there are personally offensive to us. So here's my point. Tiberius may well have had Pontius Pilate on a bit of a short rope, so to speak, because of his past blunders. 
I think Pilate was feeling some pressure. And here is another irony of the whole thing. The Jews disliked, as a result of these things, and maybe even hated Pilate until now. When they needed him to condemn Jesus. You'll find another alliance later in this story between Herod and Pilate. They hated each other until Jesus. Luke 23, 1. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. The whole company being the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin. And a few other people, I'm sure. So maybe... 100 people. In Matthew, we actually discover who was among the company. Matthew 27, verse 1 says, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. We learn a little more in John eighteen twenty eight. It says this, And they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. And they said it was early morning. So we get a time stamp here. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters. Why? So that they would not be defiled? What were they doing? They were dragging God across the courtyard. And they were afraid of being defiled because they, they might step foot in the governor's palace? The reason they didn't want to be defiled is they so they could eat Passover. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters, so they would not be defiled. According to Jewish tradition, based upon the laws, no Jew was to enter into the house of a Gentile, nor was a Gentile to enter into the house of a Jew. And this would have been exceptionally offensive during the celebration of the Passover. Executing God was certainly against the law, don't you think? Can this get any more surreal? How realistically, once again, the fact that we are that they were obeying the letter of the law while conspiring to trick Rome into executing the Son of Yahweh was amazing. perfect example of the danger of legalism. We can come to blows over whether we should have the freedom to drink wine at a meal or play cards while simultaneously coveting our neighbor's stuff. Or worse yet, denying Christ even a small percentage of the bounty He has freely given to us. So now we come to Judas. Where has he been? Did he accompany the 100 to Pilate's house? Matthew says, no, he did not. Judas had already received his 30 pieces of silver and was kind of hanging out, so to speak, on the periphery during the trial of Jesus before Caiaphas. Now, the way we know this is when he throws 
the 30 pieces of silver, they land on the court in, in, in his house. So he was still there. We read the following details concerning Judas at the very end of his life. Matthew 27, verse 3 says this, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Sounds noble. See, if, if most of us have the God that we want, God would say, Man, I'm, I'm glad you regret it, because otherwise you would have been lost forever. How much do you regret it? I'm crying so much. I, I regret it so much I'm weeping, God. I have remorse. Okay. Because that's all it takes, right? No, that isn't what it takes. Judas lesson number one. You can choose to sin, but you cannot choose the consequences of your sin. Judas may have chosen to be with Jesus, but Judas... Judas sorry. Let me start over. Judas may have chosen to be with Jesus, but Jesus did not choose him. See, not, that's not the God we want, right? Because that makes God sovereign. That makes God powerful above all things. I know people that have chosen to follow Jesus, and I know people that have chosen to follow Jesus that weren't Christians. They weren't believers. But let's look at this a little more because it's uncomfortable. Judas may have chosen to be with Jesus, but Jesus did not choose him. This was obvious when Judas betrayed Jesus for the equivalent of a month's pay. You may choose to be here with us every Sunday morning, but that doesn't mean Jesus has chosen you. When you repent and receive, that is proof that Jesus has chosen you. It's not very clean and tidy, is it? See, most of us want a God who at the expense of his own identity will break his own laws in order to serve us. And that's never what the Bible says. We are to serve Jesus. We are to serve God. Why? Because he's worthy. Judas lesson number one. You can choose to sin, but you cannot choose the consequences of your sin. Judas lesson number two. There is a point of no return. I have heard many people throughout my life say that they are just not quite ready to receive Christ. And if you ask them, what does Christ still have to do in order for you to receive him? They have no answer. They just know that it's not yet good enough. So we can easily understand there is a point of no return concerning death, right? 
Once you die, you certainly can't make up your mind to do something as if you were still living. The time to choose eternal life is when you are alive. A dead man cannot be born again. Only a living man can be born again. And by the way, no one can pray you out of hell. That is heresy from Satan. That doctrine is false and deceives you into believing that even death is not absolute. So I submit to you there is a time while we are still living upon the earth that we are beyond the reach of the gospel. And I know that makes people uncomfortable also. Here's why. Because we've grown up with this. Well, listen, all things are possible through Christ, right? Everyone is worthy. Not all things are possible through Christ. You can't sin through Christ. You can't deny Christ through Christ. The more we hear the gospel and reject it, the easier it is to develop eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear. And I am telling you, you can reach a point of no return while you are still breathing oxygen here. Once again this morning, you are hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is your point of no return? Can you hear it 12 more times? I heard the gospel hundreds of times when I was a little hippie. Hundreds of times. And they didn't even give it right. I mean, it sounded better than it was. You understand that? Because here's what they said. I said, what do I have to give up? They said, nothing. Yes, you do. You have to give up everything. Well, I'm not willing to do that. Then you're not chosen. Well, how can I be chosen? Give up everything. It was one of the things that attracted me, but it was false. And it was hard for me to get past that later. So you're hearing the gospel again. The word of God, truth, and the truth will set you free. Finally, Judas lesson number three. Satan doesn't play fair. The enemy has not one bone, so to speak, of loyalty in his body. Not one. Not one angelic dark cell has loyalty within Satan. Satan is a taker. He is a user and a deceiver. Whatever emotion or reassurance Judas felt when he was possessed by Satan was a lie. Satan has no loyalty to God. He doesn't even have loyalty to the fallen angels. He doesn't have loyalty to his demons. Everything he does is driven by his hatred of God and those who God saved. If you're here this morning and you're a believer, rest assured, Satan hates you. And i got some more news for you. 
God hates Satan. God can't hate. Yes, he can. And he does. You see, we view hate as a sin. We view hate as a flaw. God has no flaws. God has no sin. Please don't teach your children that God loves even Satan. He just hates what he did. That's not true. He's an enemy of God. Matthew 27, 4 says this. This is Judas. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is it to us? How's that for loyalty? Here's a Sanhedrin. What's that to us, Judas, you traitor? He was a hero seven hours ago. He was a hero. The leadership of Israel is saying, you're our man. You have saved Israel, Judas. You understand that? You've given us a way to get rid of this charlatan, this blasphemer. Seven hours later, he says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And he threw down the pieces of silver into the temple. He departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests... Here's legalism again. Taking the pieces of silver said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. I think what really happened is that here's one for you, here's one for you, here's one for you, here's one for you, here's one for you. We can't, we can't use it for God. It's blood money. Actually, what they did is they bought a field where people like Judas could go die. It is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel. They're always taking counsel. These guys talk so much they can't even hear anything. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying... And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. It says there that Judas hanged himself. Acts one eighteen says something similar. In falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. Well, how can both be true? Well, it can be. If you hang yourself and no one takes you down because you're not worth messing with and you hang there in the sun for a couple or three days, your body says, I've had enough, and it just destroys itself. Just in case there are critics of the Bible, both are true. And this is the end of Judas. Unless we begin to wonder if he repented at the last minute or if what he said in the temple, I have spilled innocent blood, was a confession or repentance. It was not. How do we know this? Matthew twenty six twenty four. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. To confess your sin, to have remorse over something that you did was wrong, is not salvation. 
It is repentance that is salvation. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus, you need to. How many more times can you hear this? For years I resisted that message of hope and love. As I look back on that time, I just didn't feel that I really needed Jesus. You know, God protected me in a lot of ways. He didn't protect other people. Things that damaged my body was never really of interest to me. I didn't like the taste of alcohol. And I was just really frightened of drugs because I grew up in, you know, the early 70s when they showed films in school where this is your brain and this is your brain on drugs. I believe that. And I've seen evidence of it, by the way. That wasn't, that wasn't what was keeping me from receiving Jesus. What was keeping me from receiving Jesus is my life was pretty good. I had found my God, by the way. My God was music. That's where I went. Listened to it, played it, learned it. That was my God. I was very driven. I was never bored. And I had a lot of things to do that I enjoyed. Truth is, I didn't want to give anything up to Christ. That was the truth. I liked what I had in my life, and I was afraid he'd say, you have to give that up. You know what? I have no words for you when it comes to that, by the way. That's just something you have to work through. At some point, you have to hear Jesus. What God had to save me out of was my complacency. I never for one moment believed that I was going to die until I got real old, like 40 or 50. Remember when 40 was old and 50 was old? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of looking back at 60. But I, I, I knew in my heart of hearts nothing was going to happen to me as a kid, 20, 30. I knew that I was going to die of old age. I didn't, but that's what I thought. That's part of the, of the deception, by the way. I knew I was going to die. I just never thought I would die soon. Even when I saw my classmates die in car accidents, that was never going to happen to me. Praise God it didn't, but it could have. I was no more nor any less lost than Judas. I was no more lost. I was no less lost. I was an unbeliever. It could just have easily have been me that we have been reading about that morning. Because this is what the Bible says, and we'll close with this. Matthew twelve thirty. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. There are the saved and the unsaved, and there's the lost and the found. And we invite you to be one of the saved and the found this morning. You will never fully understand how much you need Jesus until you receive Him. Weird thing, right? It's a weird thing. You'll never understand how much you need Jesus until you receive Him. It's just built that way. So we're going to close with this prayer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus... 
may we never take you for granted. May we never mock you. Revile you. Ignore you. Father, may we have an awakening in the deepest part of who we are. And may that part cry out, Jesus, now come. Come into my life. Father, we pray that if you're placing those hearts on the ears and the hearts of people, they will not let the deceiver deceive them. And we trust you, God, for it's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Love you. See you next week.